Previously on Pod Like a Hole. David Bowie was looking to escape the LA lifestyle and went to Berlin with his friend Iggy Pop. Brian Eno joined him to make a record. And they waited for Tony Visconti to show up. Oh my, I haven't. That sounds... My goodness, it's... That sounds almost perfect. What clarity. It's a... I think these early sketches of what we're doing here, uh, Brian, uh, they're going to work out. They're going to go somewhere. Now, you know, we are going to have to get Tony back in here to help us figure things out. He is part of... (laughs) Did somebody say my name? (laughs) Hey, Dave. Mr. Eno. (laughs) Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me to uh, Berlin. Yes. Well, oh boy. I, actually, Tony, I did not invite you yet, but I was about to, I, I promise. Uh, Brian and I were having some very sober and clear and on-point discussions about where we are going right now. Oh. <laughs> uh, hey, Brian, Mr. Eno. Tony, you look like you're tripping the light. Fantastic. Ah, indeed. <laughs> you know, me and my wife, Mary, and she's got, she wants to sing on this album, Dave. She's begging for it. <laughs> we, we drop acid once a week, man. You know, listen, it's the, it's the, it's the mid to late seventies. Listen, disco is dead. Coke's dead, man. We are dropping acid and seeing where it takes us with the music. I can't wait to see what happens. With this album, <laughs> uh, what's, well, what, are you, what, now, what are you writing about? What are you What are you working on? You know, where's well, your head at? Where- uh, it's fascinating that you're discussing lysergic acid dithylamide right now. Where it's you know not that I, David Bowie, need any aid any longer of such things to write and create good music, but. So, Tony, are you on acid right now? Oh, oh man. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab- 100%. Absolutely. Second I step foot off that airplane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely tripping balls. So, uh, right now, sound is vision and vision is sound to you, I imagine. The senses are entwined like... The third eye glaring at me like a cyclops upon Homer and the Iliad. Of course, you know that old fable. Yes, uh, well, as annoying as you're being right now, sounding like the lyrics to a uh, alternative metal progish band from the 1990s, I do like that you've reminded me of the power of sound and vision. Brian, we might be able to use that idea later. Tony might be worth a damn. I'm telling you. I've been telling you. I know right now he's not making a great case for himself, but Tony is worth having around. I've, I haven't gotten where I've gotten without Tony by my side. And I, I do understand that many people do tell me, David, Tony's only holding you back. He shows up to recording sessions uh, doused in some kind of liquid that might be urine, but you wonder how can a man be covered completely in urine? And there are other times where 
we fly somewhere together and he goes in the restroom and the plane lands everyone departs and then three hours later tony's calling me he's still locked in the bathroom i know but trust me brian dave tony is dave this is this is brian eno of course speaking and uh, i understand i'm looking right at you brian brian i'm looking at you you are you are spot on my vision brian brian my i'm visualizing you with my eyes and i'm hearing your voice there is sound and vision between you and i right now brian yes i i I see a key on a keyboard i know if i hold that key down for 12 minutes it will be a 12 minute song i get it sound and vision 100 percent. listen you are spot on about tony's purpose you see we record we do whatever we want and then we leave a stack of tapes a ceiling high and tony has to edit it together into an album it's beautiful Poetry. I'm right there with you, Dave. Fantastic. Hey, uh, so you see the, the walls are so, there's so much texture on these walls, guys. And they just feel good to rub your hands on them. If you've done it before, it's wonderful. So, Tony, you, you did bring your wife this time, did you? Mary, yeah, of course. She's, so, she's out there somewhere. This explains how we're going to record that Pac-Man song later. I know that much. Uh, well, all, all right then, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm trying to do things differently on the straight and narrow, and Brian is not, uh, you know, he's, we, we seem to be on the same level, but you do what you have to do, and let's just try to, uh, not get our wires, wires crossed, and maybe we can make some more magic, because right now, Tony, I... Don't want you to take this personally. I know how emotional you can get. But right now, I feel... I feel like my my body has shaken loose some of the demons that were with me in the States. And I'm flying high right now. I mean, I'm not... Uh, I, you know, everything's not perfect. But I, uh, right now, this state of mind that I am in, uh, it's clear... And I feel like I can float high. You're high, but you just talked about demons, and I can think about our demons, Dave. I'm thinking about the Diamond Dog days. We were, we were in the gutters, man. Oh God, you're high, and I'm, I'm so low right now. I'm gonna go just curl up in the bathtub. Wait, what does yes? You are kind of low. You are a pathetic creature down there. Low. Hmm. Simple. Elegant. That might be a good album title. Dave, I think you got yourself there a bingo, pal. Talk about low we did for one entire episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and check it out. Uh, but for this episode, we are going to pick up where we left off. We are going to flip the record over and go to side two. And while side one was uh, some dancey, spaced out electronica uh, disco jams, side two goes into the ambient and the avant-garde. And we're going to go right there with it. So follow us along for the second half of Low.
right, Joe, take it away. Yeah, man. Uh, this song is uh, very much, um, you know, kind of the thing that brought me to the album. So, Joe, original. You, you mentioned you mentioned earlier, you're you, you kind of got into Bowie Neo Eno at the same time, right? Uh, in in like kind of a roundabout way, you know, like uh, you know, in '96, that uh, you know, that Train Spotting album, which featured you know tracks from both. Uh, that, that, that song from, you know, when, when Renton was, you know, diving in the potty for that, (laughs) for that, for that anal suppository had that beautiful, uh, slow motion Western, uh, uh, instrumental song from Ryan Eno. And I was just like, I don't know what this is, but this is incredible. This sounds like, uh, it really did. It was a perfect underwater song, even though it was like a weird, like, you know, kind of like Western square dancey song, just slowed down uh, in space, and so like the, like vaporwave in a weird way, yeah. Before that was even in its own known as its own aesthetic, right? And so I was, uh, you know, kind of taken by that and was exploring very much into that territory of ambient and 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 awesome that that that. Uh, Bowie, uh, you know, not only encouraged him, but, you know, gave him a place on his records uh, to make this kind of music. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's special, it's haunting. Um, and it's, again, it fits though, you know, it's a, it's a very alien kind of soundscape. And for someone who likes to explore the, the mysterious and the new and the unknown, uh, David Bowie does have an extremely sharp uh, pop sensibility, uh, but he very much appreciates, uh, you know, exploring new ground. And uh, I don't know, this song is, is is something else. And again, fitting in with, you know, uh, you know, the, the German Krautrock influences, I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, this is the kind of sound that, you know, he was kind of taken with that uh, the... Um, uh, the Tangerine Dream. We're doing this kind of stuff. It, it's very cinematic and, and sweeping. And uh, you know, '77, I believe, is when they were doing their first, uh, you know, film uh, score work. You know, they kind of became famous for that. You know, in the '80s, but it began in '77. Uh, sorcerer oh fantastic uh william freaking film yeah. and uh that score is oh my god there's that there's that scene in that goddamn movie where they're trying to cross it's reflective of the times and yet it stands as a you know a unique soundscape and uh you know a very kind of a, a pretty bold thing to put on a pop record at this in its time and uh you know it's not it's not it's not the highlight of the record by any means uh, but it certainly uh, adds to the mystique of it for me. There are moments on almost all of the songs on the side where it gets into the fantastical, and I'm thinking of Tangerine Dream's Legend score, the 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 uh, the not the theatrical release, right? But the director's cut, the Tangerine Dream uh, Legend score. Um, but it doesn't stay there very long. It, it 
each song has movements on these instrumentals and it gets there and uh, and it gets very fantastical and it was it's kind of uh, Bowie's fantastical vision of Europe um, that he's trying to paint on this side musically uh, that's not necessarily based on reality but just just based on his idea of it um, that they recorded this in a very interesting way it they had a click track and uh, 430 clicks happened as they were recording the song. Um, and they would be play the synth over it. And then they would remove every like five clicks. They would take those songs and they would put it, those songs in a, they would put those notes that would hit on those five clicks in a separate file. And, uh, then they would fill in the blanks and it kind of gave them freedom. They had, they had a structure to stay in, but they had freedom in between those clicks. And, uh, they use those on a few different songs on the side and it's a crazy way to make music. Um, yeah, this song's, uh, quite interesting. Um, and it's, and sometimes it's very cold, um, and very, uh, foreboding and it's, sometimes it's fantastical. Um, so yeah, cool track. Uh, this song, out of all the instrumentals, uh, this one kind of gives me the feeling of a uh, a Zelda dungeon, which I find to be a, a fun point of reference joke. Um, the second half of this record is definitely, it doesn't lose me, but I think it's definitely where you, uh, Eric Anderson, and uh, Joe are going to have more to say than, than uh, Mark and myself. Well, Eric, do you, is there any significance to the name Warzawa? Well, yeah, that was uh, Joy Division's first name. Do you think that's why he named it this? I don't. Oh, think it for it, sure, is confirmed. That's why. Yeah, but it, but it also isn't it isn't it related to? Uh, is it related to Poland or Germany or what? What is it? It's it's Poland, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. Yeah. It, this whole side of the album is supposed to feel like like. Bowie's kind of fantastical idea of parts of Europe. Okay. So yeah. Okay. That's what, that's why I just want to make sure we went on record with that is, you know, he, he went to Poland and he went from Moscow to West Berlin and that's, you know, probably where the, 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 the title of this track came from. Like the world war two historical part of it, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Uh, all right. So Joe, while you're out, I, I was saying that this song always reminds me of a Zelda dungeon from the early Zelda games. You think so? Yeah. It kind of just gives me that creeping around vibe to it. I don't know. A sinister creep. Yeah, it is. It is a, it is a more conventionally, uh, uh, spooky, uh, kind of song, uh, with its dark overtones. Although I don't, uh, although, you know, the weird thing with that Zelda dungeon to me, specifically, the original game dungeon music is that always uh that song is like real catchy uh i i don't know if I, I don't feel like most people appreciate it like that but it's it's by far more catchy to me than the overworld theme like when i think of zelda music from the original game i always think of the dungeon and not the overworld um uh, because even though it's dark and spooky, it's very, very catchy and alluring to me. And this song, 
you know, War- the Warsaza song is uh, is a little bit less uh, a little bit less catchy. It kind of uh, it kind of it, it has you know again more of a cinematic tone to it. It's a little understated. It it sort of it's it's interesting in in light of the way that it was recorded. Parts of it sort of kind of uh, fade into the background, and I think that's by design, right? Uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not certain, but I, I think maybe maybe it is. Uh, well, yeah, like I said with the click track, they start stuff, and then they they play they played some stuff on the click track, and they removed a bunch of it, and then filled in the blanks, and that's the idea: is the stuff they removed is gone, and they're and they're they're kind of that kind of gave them a road to get creative in the gaps. Right. Right. So it's, it, it has, you know, again, it's a piece of ambience. So I think to an extent it's supposed to create a mood rather than a melody and uh, evocative of a feeling rather than like a statement. Um, and so I think it's very effective of that. And I think, again, it's very cinematic. I think, uh, you know, Bowie was very much in a state of, uh, you know, uh, looking at film as kind of a new frontier, uh, potentially, uh, at the time, uh, you know, new directions always with him. Um, and so I think that song is, uh, uh, I don't think it's like one of the stronger ones, but again, it, it was one of those ones that it was just, you know, as a concept for him to be doing like, you know, these big ambient, you know, pieces on what is, you know, a, a, a rock and roll album was just, uh, you know, it, it it was really unique and really new. Yeah, definitely. The, the fact that this, this is, you know, an album from a big rock star is pretty goddamn incredible. Those, those yeah. guys that are, those guys at RCA, the fact that be my wife was the only thing that could even like get resembling that to be a single off this record speaks volumes. Uh, <laughs> this track does have some vocals on it. It's more vocalizations. Right. Uh, right. And you know, it's, I, I don't even know if they're real words. Um, they seem to have a rhyme and reason to them, but, they're no language I that I speak, uh, but yeah, they they are there. It's kind of like a monk chant, if anything. But um, you know, it's very artistic, and I do believe Billy was in his art decade, which also is the name of the next track. Fancy that! Here's a mm-hmm. clip from Art Decade. How do you feel about the art decade? Art decade, a a play on words for Art Deco, um, and it's it's interesting. It's very much. I was I referenced the last song with vaporwave. This actually more is is that it sounds like elevator music half the time. Um, this was uh, definitely um, uh, Bowie composed something, and Brian Eno did some stuff over it. Uh, very influenced by um uh brian eno's pussyfootin album from 73 um this one has a little bit more of a melody and a little bit more of a of a drive to it no percussion still it's still ambient in the sense it's got some icy synths um and 
I mean, I can see why it, it doesn't have the emotion of the other songs on here. Um, but uh, it's interesting, and, you know, I, I would say it's pretty influential for some other stuff that would come in its vein later on. Uh, yeah, I uh, I agree. Um, this is a uh, this song is is also kind of interesting. It's uh, you know I think it's uh, the the obvious uh, kind of sound alike is uh, you know some of the the early um, original compositions of like Wendy Carlos. This song absolutely sounds like the Tron soundtrack. <laughs> I'm not joking though; like it really does. No, I, 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 you, you, you managed to nail something I was trying to think of earlier when I was trying to describe this song. Uh, yeah, keep yeah. going. But basically, yeah, you know, Wendy Carlos was known more for like the, uh, uh, you know, the the adaptations of you know uh, a classical like orchestra pieces. Uh, the symphonic voices through uh, through synthesizer, which was you know a statement of early you know that was like the dream of synthesized music, right? Of making these like these grand uh, you know human you know orchestral sounding uh, you know music uh, with machines, right? And so the future was what? Well, what's why don't we have to? Why do we have to do that? Why don't we just? enjoy the sounds that they can make that's unique to them as an instrument on their own. And so uh, this, this song in particular has, uh, you know, a more, uh, I guess, a classical synthesizer sound uh, as opposed to the more, I think, forward pushing sounds uh, elsewhere on the album. Uh, so I don't think it has like the same kind of uh, impact uh, to me uh at least as far as the other ones it's 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 uh and i did you know again i i love that there's these like wild uh largely instrumental pieces on the album but this one uh is probably is probably my least favorite on the on the record uh i it's i mean that's like that's like the worst thing i can say is that it's not my favorite uh, it's right. still it's still such an interesting song it's still such an interesting part of an incredibly diverse whole uh, that I couldn't imagine the album without it. It's, you know, this is uh, you know, this is an album that I I listen to front to back, and I never skip songs unless to repeat them. You know, so this uh, I wouldn't skip this song, but I also don't repeat it. <laughs> you you need something a little playful in between Rasawa and uh, Subterraneans. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, the, the second half of this album, I, I um it's not my absolute favorite stuff in the world, but it does do a good sense of setting moods and they do do, um, you know, back to Joe saying the cinematic thing. I think they do really set a good sense of place on the second half. I mean, back, you know, I made my comment about the Zelda dungeon. I, I think these songs, if you listen to them all the way together, you really do feel like you're in a strange otherworldly land. I mean, I just got done reading. Um, I finally finished the the Inkal, Inkal, the the Mob- Mobius and Jordowski comic, and this music sounds like some of the places that they put on paper to make you look at. It just sounds very. The, the, these these are places that you would have trouble visiting unless somebody helped you get there, and they definitely get you get there uh, audibly. And uh, yeah, our decade's pretty good. It's it. I mean it's it's fine it has moments in it where it sounds like a little creatures running underneath a uh a digital running board 
that kind of gives me a it's not the the main thrust of the song but if you listen for it there's these little flourishes where everything seems to tweak out really quick and then get back to where it wanted to be and it sounds like uh you know early apex twin or something i i don't i i i don't know how to point out what i'm talking about but buried in this song is something that reminds me of apex twin the um, next track is weeping wall So Weeping Wall actually started as Bowie trying to score the uh, the man who fell to earth. Um, he ended up not being... Uh, uh, Nicholas Rowe did not accept his score and went with the guy from the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some For some reason. Which yeah. one? John, uh, John Phillips? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Went the with rapist? He went with John Phillips. Um... So uh, you can you can you kind of see how that would have worked, and it probably would have made it better. Although it's kind of funny, like having the little '70s folk being the score, <laughs> it kind of works for the movie too. Um, so uh, he was trying to invoke the misery of the Berlin Wall, according to the Pushing Heather Dame website. That's what this song was meant to meant to sound like. Uh, one thing I like about it is there's a lot of mallet work, xylophones. Uh, metal percussion um, setting the beat. And this is the one song on this side that has a, a, a pretty uh, steady beat throughout the whole thing. It's got a great, like, tinny metal uh, mallet sound uh, dri- driving the driving the beat. Um, and uh, it's actually a sound that I've heard come up a lot in, like, contemporary scores, like modern, modern score work. Um, I feel like that part was pretty progressive. Um, there's a synth line and a guitar line and they're uh, they, that repeats and they're doing Scarborough Fair that happens over and over they kind of go back and forth synth does it guitar does it and it kind of comes up throughout the whole thing uh, and uh, this one was primarily uh, Bowie the Bowie Bowie recorded this on his own so uh, anyways uh, that's Weeping Wall that's a uh, that's a that's an interesting observation that I think uh, we haven't even really talked about. You know, the, this was still at the height of the Cold War, and in Berlin, you know, the city was divided by that wall. Um, so I think that is a, a huge um, jumping-off point thematically uh, that he doesn't ignore. You know, um, I think it's a it's pretty keen observation that would have been more obvious if we were exploring it in its time. You know, we were little kids when that wall came down, so we don't really consider like what it was like. You know, it's it's effect on all of culture uh, in the '70s, right? Um, and uh, likewise, this song uh, really separates itself from some of the other instrumental tracks by having 
uh, that, that live instrumentation, that, the, that mallet work as you described it. Right. Uh, and it, and it was also very, uh, ahead of its time because like you said, that kind of sound, that kind of instrumentation became a very common thing in like late nineties, early two thousands score. What were we just talking about? Uh, national treasure, tons of that in the score, you know? Yeah. It has lots of that. And, uh, yeah, so it's, a it's a, it's a, it's a standout of the instrumentals, uh, for that purpose. Um, uh, because it, it it has this uh, liveliness to it, you know. I'm a big fan of uh, you know uh, other you know, uh, Stereo Lab, Tortoise, you know John McIntyre. Oh, yeah. You know he uh, he re- that's kind of his bread and butter, right? Like that's uh, uh, the elaborate you know vibraphones uh, in that music, and uh, you know this this song really kind of uh, put that into context for uh, you know uh, really awesome use in. Uh, in rock in rock and roll on a rock and roll album to have you know a song full of synthesizers and xylophones and shit so yeah cool song yeah man i i, I don't think i've thought of, of of tortoise in like two years they're a great band uh, listen listen tomorrow <laughs> yeah i'll dig them up tomorrow uh yeah this is my least favorite song on the record this is what holds it back from being a you know it's really hard for an album to be perfect so i'm not gonna you know, yeah, a, a perfect album. You usually can't hold one bad track from holding an album away from being perfect. Cause how often can you get like 10 tracks to be perfect? But this song annoys me so much. It really does detract from the album for me. Um, Anno- what, what, what's annoying about it though? The, the repetition of the song just does not do it for me. And it kind of reminds me of uh, that South Park episode where they have Philip Glass in it. Remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the 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 particular repetition of the clanging and banging on the song just I, I'm just not feeling it. I don't know. Um, it's not terrible. But I like mallets. We get it. I get it. It's it's yeah. You know, I'm, I'm anti mallet. Um, but you know. It's the last song that was recorded during the sessions for the low. And then he went and recorded uh, Lust for Life with, with Iggy Pop. It's not bad music, but if I'm going to skip a track on this record, it's this one. And it's just because I like the next track so much. So let's get to well, Subterranean. You really don't care about the plight of the, of the people uh, in East Berlin. So, yeah. That's you made your you made your point clear. As a uh, as as a card carrying Romstein fan, you know that is not true, sir. Go to the next track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's go to Subterraneans, the final track on this album proper.
So that was Subterraneans, which is my favorite of the instrumental tracks in this record, or at least the second half of this album. The uh, ambient ones. Yeah, the ambient tracks. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I, I think it's a great closer to the record. And um, it just reminded me, I haven't heard from Mark in a while, so I do think the Subterraneans got a hold of him. I hope we find Joe or we find Mark again one day, but right now he's probably in Midian with the the mutants, and who knows what they're doing to him. You want to hear something crazy? Subterraneans was actually recorded in the studio once they finished Station to Station. So he actually did the well, not the whole the whole song, but he did the bare bones of the song in the studio in L.A. after Station to Station, and he brought it with him. So this is pre-Eno. Pre-Eno. I mean, Eno ended up on this. So he, yeah, he recorded the bare bones and then brought it to to France and Berlin and Eno added his flourishes. But this was the one song that he 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 had in his head at the end of the L.A. sessions. Which Interesting. I well, I mean, when you listen to Idiot, Idiot was pre-Eno too. But there was still a lot of stuff there that I think Eno might have uh, helped develop. So they definitely, he was heading in a direction to where Brian Eno was the guy that it made sense for him to meet next, if you will. Uh, Subterraneans, though, that now that you say that, the fact that it's so sax heavy, it makes sense that he recorded that, you know, it, it started with him. So, because the guy, the guy loves honking on Bobo. I will say that his sax work on this song is out of this world. It's, it's like some... Blade Runner future, Blade Runner future, ja- like Nor. It's 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 great. Now they uh, yeah. when we saw Nine Snails together, Eric didn't they played this right? Am I misremembering that? Yeah, no, they did. They do. They, when we saw them again, they did do Subterraneans this last year when we saw them. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I know that it um, led into we cover. Yeah, what did it lead into? It led into. Um, uh, the music to uh, God Break Down the Door, but he That's was right. singing the lyrics to I Can't Give This All Away, I believe. Yeah. Like, it was like a mashup thing. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. One thing I do like about this track is that it reminds me quite a bit of um, uh, the bass line of the song, the doom, 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 doom. That plotting bass line really gives me the feel of... Uh, the reoccurring motif on Nine Nails fragile records. It really sounds like this could go into the, uh, the wretched. It, it, it has the, 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 the baseline in this track really sounds like it's, it, it could be inserted onto Nine Nails, the fragile and lead into some of the uh, other tracks on that album. Oh, it would fit. It would fit like a glove in that, uh, deviations, the fragile deviations. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's a great closer to the album myself. Uh, and, and, and Joe, how do you feel about Subterraneans? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely the the it's the lead attraction on the uh, as far as like the ambient side. Uh, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, this was like one of the first pieces that that at least he, he started putting together uh, before he put the whole team together and, uh, on a different continent. Right. Um uh, Eric made a really good, uh, 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 you know, similarity in style to Blade Runner, and this predates that by five years. Um, 
but likewise, it's, uh, I think it also really kind of, uh, you know, deserves mention just because it's like, you know, in spite of like the, the, the incredible work that, um, you know, uh, Eno was, uh, creating, uh, you know, on his own with, in, in the scope of the ambient music space, um, just, uh, uh, the mood and, uh, you know, the intentionality of like the, the songwriting, uh, you know, that this was largely a, a Bowie, uh, composition, uh, is really kind of telling that, you know, maybe, uh, <laughs> he deserves a little more credit for influence on, uh, Brian Eno. And usually it's kind of the other way around, right? right. Because David Bowie has this, uh, long and varied career, right? And so it's always kind of reflected through the lens of who he was producing with, who he was playing with, who he was recording with. But I feel like it really was truly a two way street. And I didn't, I had no idea that this was, you know, a Bowie, you know, I don't know much about the production of the album, so that's actually new to me right now. I didn't realize that, that Bowie wrote this song uh, on his own before he gathered all the players. He did, so, and, and he actually tried to put this one in, in the Man Who Fell to Earth as well. So this is in, in the rejected. Bundle. Wow, that's that movie's loss for sure because this is a beautiful <laughs> yeah, track. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you know, it reminds me of you know some of Eno's work, like in Ascension. Um, like so, he you can really feel that this song, and uh, like you were mentioning, you know how it fits in with. Uh, some of the nine inch nails songs, it has like really beautiful melodies, uh, kind of, um, buried within it. You know, it reminds me of like, you know, uh, well, a warm place. Sure. Very clearly yeah. a jump off of what was that David Bowie song that that uh, was yeah, inspired that crystal, by. Uh, yeah. That crystal weird, Japan, crystal Japan. Exactly. So, um, it, it, you know, I think that this is really kind of one of the, one of the shining, uh, uh, peaks of the album, uh, for sure. And one of the defining pieces of what makes it so unique um, for me. There are lyrics to this song that make zero sense. Share bride falling star. Caroline, Caroline, Caroline riding me. Surely, surely, surely own share bride falling star. Doesn't make any sense. But when you hear him sing it, it's some of the best Bowie vocal. I mean, it's operatic. He he's 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 bellowing it. Um and uh, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it it doesn't mean anything. It's it's some kind of code language. Only Bowie knows what it means. Um, it's very strange, uh, but I don't know. It works, and it, it, it's fine. You, you don't even notice it because there's an emotion, and especially if you factor in that he's writing these songs about the wall in Berlin. Um, the sadness. Uh, and I, I think he did say that he threw the jazz saxophone in to remind us of what, what Berlin used to be. Um, especially like if you look back in the twenties and thirties, like there was a jazz, like a massive jazz scene in Berlin. That's that, especially East Berlin that's gone now uh, or gone as, as far as this, this, this was recorded when the wall, when the wall came up during the cold war. Um, which I think is kind of a beautiful idea. So yeah, this is an amazing closer. Considered it the closer. Yeah. Right. When, uh... You never consider the closer, but uh, I feel yeah. like the, the, the Ryko bonus tracks maybe should have gone before this. So, Perhaps. I mean, in a perfect, if you're really going to yeah. consider it part of the album <laughs> sequencing. Yeah.
Yeah, one thing about it that I like um, that I, you know, I was trying to to say earlier the visualizations that these uh, these ambient tracks give me is that uh, from Pushing Head the Dame that this track was about the people that remained in East Berlin after the wall was built. And the faint jazz saxophones represent the memory of what it was. And I think that really puts a pin on uh, what he was trying to accomplish on the, these ambient tracks. 100%. Absolutely. So all that being said, this great record that we've discussed, um, Joe, on this show, we rate these albums one out of five bolts. And what do you, before we discuss the bonus tracks, what do you give low one out of five? Oh, it's a, that's a full uh, five out of five bolts from Joe. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's no secret. Anyone who will, who will listen to me about Bowie will, uh, will know right off the right, right in the first minute of discussion that low is my favorite Bowie album. Um, it's just such an oddity. And uh, I think just, you know, partially from just discovering it at the right time, but also just kind of, uh, you know, finding it by, you know, a, a slightly roundabout way when I was kind of exploring all different directions in music and just seeing it come back to one of my favorite artists as this, uh, you know, just this complete uh, departure from what we thought you know, I mean, I can't even imagine how this would have landed, you know, for a David Bowie fan in 1977, right? Could you imagine being 16 in 1977 and hearing this album? I mean, I I don't even know. I mean, I, I often wonder um, if, if this album was as divisive as I imagine it might have been. But, uh, you know, you know, coming across it in a more, I guess, postmodern context and the way I found it, you know, and the way, you know, people discover music in the modern era. I mean, it's even crazier now. Uh, it was just, uh, it was just lightning in a bottle and, you know, in, in my opinion, and, uh, it, it, I found it at exactly the right time when I needed to find it. And, um, it really just kind of was like, huh, I don't know why I'm not surprised. I don't know why I'm surprised, you know, that, that these like incredible people found each other and made this like incredibly weird album, you know, uh, kind of, uh, in the midst of just so many new things happening that seem unconnected. And, and I guess it shouldn't be surprising that David Bowie found himself right in the middle of it because he kind of just, <laughs> that was his magic. Right. So, uh, this album by extension is that for me. So I just uh, saw a hand pop up from the sewer and uh, it looked like Mark San and he passed me a note and it says that he rates this album a 4.75. So close. His favorite song is always crashing in the same car. His least favorite song is what in the world and his favorite of the instrumentals is actually a bonus track. All saints. Uh, favorite uh, song is always crashing in the same car. That's uh, interesting. Right. Very cool. Uh, for me, I'm with Joe on this one. This is a five out of five from the first time I heard it. Um, the first half is some like genre creating music. It, it created uh, decades and decades of, of, of a new version of pop music, of integrating electronic and live band sounds. It's some of his best lyrics. Uh, like I said, Heart on a Sleeve, 
some of his most exposed lyrics. Um, and, uh, it just so interesting sounding. And then you get to, and you're right. The songs are short and some of them fade out. You never really get an ending and that can leave you wanting more. And then you get the side B, which is nothing but, but layers of instrumental emotion. And you get your closure that way, one way or another, you get your closure when you get to side B. It's a, it's a perfect album. I love it. It's my first five out of five. Well, actually, I think I might have given Black Star five out of five, but uh, but 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 uh, for for similar reasons, I feel fully satisfied at the end of this album. Yeah, I give it a I give it a four point five. I think it's a great record. I think it's an all timer. It's a classic. It's near perfect, and some of the reasons that we uh, make it unique are also the ones that that give me the hold back. And maybe I'm being selfish on my part. I would actually like it if they would have uh, finished some of the songs, but they, you know what? It's better to leave us wanting more than to overstay your welcome, as Joe said earlier. But at the same time, maybe if, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, always crashing this. What's one of the ones that just did a new career in a new town? Maybe if that one lasted another minute, I would have liked it. I don't know. I, uh, we all, we all would. We all, yeah, exactly. But no, it's, it, it's, you know, mainly it's just that one, that one instrumental track. I'm not a big fan of, uh, that's, that's that second to last one. Weeping wall. The weeping mm-hmm. wall. I really just do not like weeping wall. Yeah. That's about it. And, you know, about it's East Berlin. We know. Yeah. Four. Listen, 4.5 out of 4.5 out of five is still, it's a, it's, you know, but it's, it's, it's a very good grade. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just happened. If I'm trying to, I like so many David Bowie albums so, so much. I probably like five of his other albums, maybe more than this one, you know? And so I can't give them all perfect scores, but it's, it's a great record. Hey Lennox. I know you and I have low in common that we both like it because we both have t-shirts with the low cover, right? Do you have a poster in your room too? Yes. Oh, so you like this album? I do. How many bolts would you give it? I would give it a five out of five bolts. Woo. Like father, like son. Very good. What's your favorite song? My favorite song is probably Subterraneans. You like ambient music, right? Mm-hmm, I do. What do you usually do when you listen to ambient music? I usually like sleep or read books. Perfect. Thanks, Lennox. Goodbye. All right, that was Lennox's rating and all of our ratings. Uh, the Ryko disc came with two bonus songs, and we're going to hop right into those right now. This first one is a little track called Some Are. was for sure recorded during this era it is a quiet little song um that was co-written by Eno and Bowie so this is definitely a collaborative piece um and it's apparently about uh the uh, Napoleon army uh when they stumbled back in Russia uh (laughs) 
They couldn't advance on Mo Moscow because of the weather. That's what the song's about, apparently. This one has vocals. It's very pretty. Um, and uh, they only cut it because I guess maybe the sound made it, may, may have been redundant on the album, but um, it's a good little track. Did you listen to this one? Uh, like, uh, Joe considers it part of the album because of the Ryko disc so yeah. much so that Philip Glass considers it part of the album when he, Philip Glass did the, uh, low symphony and he put this on there. Joe, what do you think about the song? <clears throat> uh, this is a great song. Uh, it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly quiet, uh, uh, piece um, and it puts, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't have like much of a, you know, any kind of, uh, beat sorry, my, my idiot dog got his foot caught in his collar. Uh, what were you saying? <laughs> Nothing that profound. Tell us more about the dog. Joe Murdoch and Bruno are so old and dumb. They're just, <laughs> we're going to be lucky if we get through this year, but anyhow, uh, uh yeah, no, we're, so we're talking about some are. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of this song. I've always considered it part of the album cause it's, you know, how I found the album. Um, it puts his vocals front and center. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, hide behind, uh, much other music. Um, but the music that is there is, is haunting. Uh, this also sounds like some of the, you know, nine inch nails, um, uh, stuff like on, uh, you know, the fragile, um, the, the the quieter piano still. yes ex yeah 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 still uh uh so i think again it ties very much in into the piece and the the overarching theme of your podcast uh drawing more parallels um you know whether they're overt or subconscious you know the way that that he influenced uh music uh, again this is like a a song that, that would never have been like a a huge hit and yet i think that it has uh this whole era of David Bowie has found like a whole subsection of fans, you know, uh, beyond, beyond it's, it's era. Right. You know, like people like me, I liked David Bowie and because of this album, because of songs like this, I love David Bowie. Right. Like it's, uh, it's kind of, it, what it's what really like made me into kind of like a super fan, right. This kind of, this kind of stuff we find on this album. So, yeah. Eric, what's the next extra track? Next extra track is All Saints. So All Saints is weird. Um, if you go look in the research, Pushing Ahead the Dame, other things, like there's no documented moment where they recorded this song. It's actually um, theorized that this song, the melody is made up of a bunch of 
outtakes from Low and Heroes chopped and screwed and put through various synthesizers and then like a new beat and guitar was laid over it in 91. So here's the, here's the deal. There is an album, an official album that was released called all saints by David Bowie. Mm. And it's a collection. It's a collaborative. It is a collection of all of his instrumental tracks, but that came from a private album that he put out as a Christmas card to fans or not fans, friends in 91. And he just took all of his instrumental tracks and this was the only new song on it. So it's, it's believed that they just took a bunch of outtakes from the low and hero sessions in 1991 and then kind of remix them into this song. So actually this song may, may have been made just for the Ryko disc and just for the all saints, the all saints uh, instrumental uh, compilation. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a great song. It sounds so ahead of its time. This is the most industrial leaning song on there. It's just got a thumping bass synth, like, um, like repeating. And then, um, the, the, you can totally hear the low sound in there. Um, and then just like fuzzy guitars over it, a lot of noise. It's a very cool song. I can see why it's Mark's favorite. It's, it's, if this was actually recorded in 77, it is so far ahead of its time. If it, if it's not, it's still a great song. Yeah. I don't know a lot about this song. Uh, I just enjoy it. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to add really. Um, again, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know any of the context about how, how it would have been written or put together. Um, but I guess I never really considered it as, as, as being kind of, uh, you know, um, an asterisk, uh, you know, and it's yeah. in it, in the way it fits, uh, within this era of David Bowie's songwriting, uh, because it really does fit in. Sure. Um, and based on the, 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 the wild explorations that, uh, that we've, uh, heard so far, you know, in the context of this album, uh, aside from being a beautiful song in, a, in an unusual song, it doesn't stand out as particularly weird because this album, no, that's true. this is a very strange album uh, by not just David Bowie's standards, but certainly by pop standards. Um, and uh, so this song, again, it, it fits like a glove to me. So something interesting is uh, this song first showed up on the, on the All Saints compilation in 1991. Brian Eno started his own record label called All Saints Records in 1991. So it's a probably a good chance this song did not come into existence until 1991. They just used old sounds. Yeah. So there you go. They must have strong feelings about this album to, you know, or, or this song in yeah. particular. Yeah. Something about it spoke to them. I mean, the fact that they would put that song out, name a compilation out of it. Uh, and a record label. And a record label. I mean... Yeah. It, 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 it must have it must have some meaning I'd like to actually get more context I, I hope that you know I mean we won't be able to hear about it from from uh, you know Mr. Bowie but uh, uh, <clears throat> I hope someone's able to find out more about this and, and give it some some more historical context because it is a it is a really uh, special song right <clears throat> what'd you think Steve did you listen to it so what's the next song <laughs> okay, he did not. He did no, not. Listen. Hey, hey, no, honestly, I didn't listen to any of these bonus tracks. So just keep oh, going. Dude, on. Steve, you like all right. I'm sure yeah. I would, but you know, there's only so much goddamn time.
dogs with feet and collars. In 1991, we got we got a remix album of Sound and Vision. Uh, 808 State versus David Bowie. Uh, Joe, who's 808 State? Uh, so 808 State were kind of like uh, arguably the most important uh, uh, production uh, recording artists in the UK expansion of Acid House. Uh, started in Chicago and, uh, you know, remained underground music in, in North America uh, until it found its way over to the UK where it coincided with, uh, you know, uh, the club scene that was happening in like 86, 87 in like Manchester. Uh, they were from Manchester. They were fixtures at, you know, factory records, the Hacienda, uh, pirate radio, uh, you know, type, um, live recording sessions, um, I think partially the success of club music, uh, you know, in, you know, happening in the mainstream in the UK is uh, partial to the way that music was distributed and, uh, and played, you know, you have an entire country and culture. It's like the size of New York, right? Uh, so word travels fast, sound travels fast, um, you know, uh, musical collectives find each other easier. And, um, yeah, 808 state were, you know, they were, I, I was mentioning it last night, Eric told me to save it for the podcast, but they were, uh, among the first of those artists, uh, you know, in the UK to like really combine like club sound with collaborating with, you know, uh, pop artists, you know, they, uh, they famously on their album XL, they collaborated on not one, but two tracks with Bjork for her debut solo album. And also with Bernard Sumner of New Order. And uh, they kind of uh, made that like cool, you know, and they were, you know, pushing boundaries with uh, sounds and samples in electronic music and making crossover uh, pop hits. So it doesn't surprise me that they were, uh, you know, screwing with, uh, you know, some classic David Bowie songs. Yeah, they did too. They did uh, 808 State Gift version, which was just a straight up. That I think this is the most pure of their remixes. It's pretty good. There's a little acid house beat, Tom Tom poundings. Patreon.com/slash/hardlikeahole. Remember it, you foolish humans. And then some of the original music you hear kind of chopped all over it. And then they do another one called Electric Blue. Which is... 
um, I call it George Michael drums. The drums sound a little bit more the like, bongos. yeah, sound that a little Manchester li- <laughs> Summer of Love, nineteen ninety. Right. Yeah, very much. Yes, and then very some much. organ work going on. And there's one more remix on this, not by 808 State, but by Dave Richards. was um bowie loved dave richards he was the the uh mixer from the montrose studios so like never let me down steve when he recorded that dave richards was the guy in the studio so he was from that era and he did a remix of this song which is essentially the exact same song but it has very early 90s drum sounds and um some goofball fucking synths this (laughs) is not a great remix the 808 state one is much better but this is like the never let me down version of sound and vision that exists on this single as well. I think the uh, 808 state remix has played it a little safe. Uh, they're not my favorites. Um, I mean, the song that David Bowie did was good. I actually would have preferred to see them make it more their own because right. this in their era, like what was this 91? Yeah. I mean, 808 state was just like, they were, they were probably the coolest electronic uh, it's pretty safe group it's, in the world. It's pretty safe. This was, uh, you know, um, you know, a year later they would uh, go on, uh, or, or Graham Macy of 808 State would go on to produce uh, York's debut, like the whole album, and then and then uh, three years or yeah, three years after that, when Post came out, he produced that as well, primarily most of the major tracks on it. So um, yeah, 808 State was extremely happening and i'm sure they were probably just honored to get you know the offer to do it um but i don't think i think that you know david bowie's further uh you know explorations with um dance music uk production uh in, in, in electronic music into the 90s would go on to do greater things uh but it's cool that he embraced it right and he followed it, and he right. pursued yeah. that. Yeah, and that and that would define this his nineties. This 90s. is a major step in that direction. Of course, we Steve, we know eight hundred eight state from their great song with the band Manson, "Skin Up Pin Up" from the Spawn soundtrack. That's it. Yep, that's uh, when I think eight hundred eight state, I think of the Spawn soundtrack, and that's not sarcasm. No. No. That's fine. You know, I gotta recommend you guys as fans of. Uh, Sorry to, to cut you off a little bit, but as fans of industrial uh, music, you guys should really listen to uh, both major mixes of uh, their uh, their song "Cubic" uh, from 1990. Uh, it was uh, it was a massive worldwide uh, dance hit, and it holds it holds up uh, remarkably well to this day. that in there no i will uh, that's great yeah. that's great all right so the last remix on here 
I'm going to save for the closing because it's so beautiful. It's a 2013 just re-recording of Sound and Vision. It's so short. It's like a minute and 45 seconds. It's Bowie and a piano. And he's playing it on, and on it. And it was just like a little single they put out in 2013 right around, right around uh, the next day. And it's glorious. And I think that's going to be a good closer. But I would like to roll for our next album first. Okay? All right. It's been a long time coming. What's that number? Number one. Number one, Steve. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I gave him roasted toadstools and a glass of dandelion wine. Oh, What's number one? Number one's all the early uh, Duram anthology stuff. Yes. Laughing Gnome. And wow. we, so, yeah, we get to do the Laughing Gnome. Well, and then. But I'm glad we're doing it now. And then we're not, I, I was so worried that was going to be the last one we did. I did not want to cap this season with uh, the laughing. <laughs> well, let's, let's make a deal. Mark's not on the episode. So we're just going to tell him what we're going to do. Yes. But, um, you know, let's just, let's, 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 let's record this in like four days from now. I don't need, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't need to sit with the Duram anthology no. for, for three no. weeks. No. To, you know, taking studious notes about it. Oh boy. So, all oh. right. Great. All right. <laughs> Good times. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for showing up. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. You know, I, I outside of this uh this podcast, we're all actually friends, but uh these guys have a long history and uh I'm kind of a side part, you know. I've known them, you know, in, individually and together, but uh uh yeah, you know, a shared love of, of music of nine inch nails of David Bowie, and so uh as soon as they mentioned that they were moving on to David Bowie, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I knew I had to be a part of it <laughs> and begged them to let me, <laughs> to let me in on low whenever it happened. Oh, yeah, begged. You know, you mentioned like it a year once. Ago. <laughs> you, yeah, you mentioned it once and we're like, oh yeah, let's remember to have Joe on for low. Uh, yeah, that's uh, so far our yeah. one and only guest. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. All right. You're Bye. welcome, sir. Any, anytime. If you want to, if you want to come back for Heroes or Lodger, you let us know. Okay. All right. I'm definitely down for some, <laughs> for either one of those. Nothing to read, nothing to say. Sit right down Waiting for the gift of sound and vision And I will see Waiting for the gift of sound and vision Drifting into my solitude Over my head Don't you wonder sometimes About sound and vision Sound and play.